All right, donks. How are you? My name is Luke Thomas. It is uh, Friday, December 6, 2019, and this is the Luke Thomas live chat. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. We didn't do one last week, for which I apologize, but let's get going this week. As always, uh, like the video, subscribe to the channel. A lot of things to get to. Let's get to them. All right. Happy, joyous day to everybody out there. Hope you're doing quite well. I know I am. A lot of different moving parts here. Again, apologies for uh, not being on last week. But, you know, I just thought if I do this on Thanksgiving Day, one, my family's going to get better at me because I have better things to do. And then two, and, and like I had actual responsibilities. And then two, uh, how many people are going to watch? And I don't know. Just take a week off. Plus, I did two of those when I was on, here we go, when I was on vacation. So I said, fuck it, I'm out. Um, Okay, what, what to get to today? Well, let's see. UFC DC is tomorrow. Uh, Joshua Ruiz 2 is tomorrow. 245 is next week. Conor McGregor's coming back. Tony Khabib is going to happen, it appears. Frankie's going to fill in uh, for Brian Ortega at 145, which I don't understand even a little bit, but nevertheless, Charlo Hogan is tomorrow. I will be there, actually. I'm not going to be at UFC DC for the fights, unfortunately. Because, I'm very excited, uh, Brian Campbell and I are going to be working the prelim Showtime Championship Boxing Analyst Desk. It'll actually be just me and him previewing the main card for Showtime and then walking through the uh, two prelim card fights that Steve Farhood's going to call him with uh, Ray Flores. But then we're going to sort of break them down and then preview the main card. Just me and Brian Campbell. To be, uh, you can watch on YouTube. So that should be a lot of fun. All right? All right. With that out of the way, again, um, I don't require. I mean, this is not like uh, this is not like the post-fight shows that I do, where if you leave money, I absolutely get to it. I mean, I will get to it, but you're not required to. I mean, this is I try to make this as free as possible. So, without further ado, let's get to these questions. Shout out, ooh, 190. That's pretty good. Good job, y'all. All right, let's get to them now right away. First up. Uh, thoughts on Leon Edwards versus Tyron Woodley. Whose style, in your opinion, has the edge in this fight? Got to be Leon Edwards. Um, he knows it, and I think Tyron knows it too. Which is to say, Tyron's, uh, Tyron is a much more devastating finisher. Uh, and like in individual things, he's going to be better. He's going to be better as a wrestler. He's going to be better as a pure boxer. He's certainly going to be the heavier hitter. He's going to have... Um, you know, you look at his resume, more knockouts, more stoppages. He's he, He's got, I wouldn't call in any way Tyron Woodley's resume deceptive. What I would say is it's deceptive relative to the Leon Edwards resume. When you look at it, A, he's beaten better guys. And two, as I mentioned, he's got all those things you could list. And you look at Leon Edwards' resume, and it's very good, but it wouldn't stand out in the same ways that Tyron's would, and yet I would very much lean towards Leon Edwards. And the reason why is folks have been asking me about one of the new sort of strategies and styles that are emerging. One thing you're seeing from the guys that are really well-rounded, which I would say Leon Edwards is very well-rounded, uh, is the half position. I've gone over it a bunch of times. He's the king of it. He really is the king of it, more so than even uh, uh, Colby Covington. Because he can strike at range. He's pretty good at it. Sorry, I got something in my eye. He can strike at range, but really what he excels at is if he gets in the clinch, he's at 50-50, which is ostensibly a neutral position. But if you know what you're doing, if someone else is also in that neutral position, you can do much better than them. Khabib Nurmagomedov is an outlier in that regard, but just to give you a sense, you can get 50-50 with Khabib, and he'll send your ass flying. So that's one way. Two, he'll take the back with one hook and then push someone up against the fence. right? So he's not really committing to taking the back, but he does have a dominant position, one that you really have to control. The other one he'll do is he'll get half guard on top. Now, that's a common position as well for a lot of different people. My point being is, rather than learning the full array of the clinch, the full array of how to control and take the back and how to finish from there, and then the full array of guard passing, which is, you know, takes a lot of time and effort. It's very difficult to do. I'm sure he could take the back to a degree. I'm sure he could pass to a degree. I'm sure he could get double unders and then go for a, you know, all different kinds of things. But what if you're just good enough? Uh, what if you, rather, what if you just focus on getting halfway there? You can still control, you can still win, and you don't have to have the full range of expertise like if you pass to mount. Dude, learning how to control from mount is very difficult, it takes a long time. 
What if you just like get okay at the mount, but then you get really good at everything from half guard? What if you get really good at just halfway putting a hook in? Or putting one hook in but not the other? Uh, it turns out that that's a labor-intensive style because you're not going to be very good at finishing, but you are going to be very good at winning rounds. You're going to be very good at beating very good guys, and it allows you to invest a lot of time in very common positions. You commonly get to a situation, let's say, from turtle where you can sink the near hook and then you don't have to worry about putting the far hook in. In fact, when you sink the near hook and then you put the far hook in, that's when, if you don't know what you're doing well enough, where all the problems begin. Well, what if you just say, we're not going to do that? What if you just say, rather than, okay, I'm in half guard. Well, how could I pass from here? I could do a knee cut pass, right? Very common pass from that position. I could do a knee cut pass in a lot of different ways you could do it. What if I just don't do that? What if I just hold right here? I can ground and pound from here. I can, if I'm sitting in half guard, half guard without the gi is not nearly, in my judgment, as effective as it is with the gi. Uh, it's the, it's the, the new meta I've seen is the half position. And so if Edwards could, uh, you know, avoid Tyron's early onslaught where he's most, you know, quick hand speed, devastating knockout power, and then get to a point where he was initiating offense and then controlling from these half positions, I think he would do very well. Now, Tyron could knock him out. Tyron could uh, out-hustle him in the clinch and then really hurt him and take him out of his game. But if that one went past the third round, you really have to like Leon Edwards' chances. And I think Leon knows that, and Tyron probably has some concerns related to that. I mean, I don't want to speak for him, certainly, but if I was in his corner, I would be worried about that, too. That's a guy you don't want to go the distance with. So, like, another thing would be, like, oh, maybe we could fight him in a co-main event slot, right, rather than a main event slot, because a three-round at Leon Edwards is going to be much more manageable than a five, right? Um, just something to think about there. Uh, Luke, who's your pick for Ruiz Joshua 2? Well, did y'all see the weigh-ins today? They just happened like an hour ago. Uh, Ruiz came in at 283. <laughs> 283. Whoa. I mean, okay, he had on jeans and a, a tank top. I was going to say wife beater. And then, uh, let me make sure my mic is... And then um, a sombrero and maybe a little bit of jewelry. So what, you want to spot him six, seven pounds? The Marine Corps, they used to do that. They would spot you five pounds when you had jeans and like a shirt on and stuff. So let's say we spot him six, seven pounds. He still is going to be heavier than he was, I think, at 267, 268 the first time they fought. Uh, Anthony Joshua, a full 10 pounds lighter, which I think is absolutely the right call. I mean, if, you had, if I had not seen the weigh-ins, which again, the 283 seems a little bit misleading. But if I had not seen the weigh-ins, my thought was going to be probably Joshua. Because remember, he dropped Ruiz in that fight. A lot of folks forget that. He dropped Ruiz. If he can really stick and move and not spend too long in front of Andy Ruiz, find a way to, to not get blitzed with the hand speed, um, stay off the ropes, which, you know, he's got the kind of ring craft to do. Now that he's 10 pounds lighter as in addition, I was like, well, that that's going to be his fight to lose. But I thought... Ruiz would make an account of himself such that he would still be a star and still be in coveted fights. Something like the McGregor-Diaz rivalry, where McGregor uh, loses to Diaz the first time. You're like, oh my God, how'd this happen? And then they were in a very, very close fight where in the end, McGregor won, but Diaz came out of there still, you know, obviously retaining a lot of respect and star power. I thought it would be something kind of like that. Now I'm not sure what to make because you still see these reports saying... Joshua also got dropped in practice. He's been real kind of quiet um, for the most part. And then you see these weigh-ins. You're like, well, okay, well, the weigh-ins look better for Joshua. I, it's hard. It's, I, I'm going to stick with my original prediction because it's hard to know like that these leaks from camp are even real. And if he's 10 pounds lighter and then Ruiz is heavier, that might be just enough breathing room for Joshua to do what he's able to do. Because he is, and I think in some ways especially in ring craft and then sitting behind the jab in that sense, in that aspect of boxing, I think he's better. Um, Ruiz is good at, at maybe slip countering and then blitzing. So, but if he's heavier, that's going to be harder for him to do, even though he's like, you know, we all know he's, you know, it wasn't like he just got chubby. He's been doing chubby work for a long time. Um, I'll st I'll stick with Joshua. I'll stick with Joshua, but I think it's going to be something like that McGregor Diaz rivalry. We'll see. But you know, if Ruiz goes in there looking, relatively speaking, for him out of shape, and then still beats Joshua, well, that would be terrible for Joshua's career, huh? 
Uh, Khabib versus Tony predictions and analysis. I've been doing a lot of thinking about it, man. I don't know that I have any predictions for you right away. I still have a little bit of work to do. Really, it's going to come down to um, the same thing it always comes down to with Khabib. Is to what extent is Tony's offense going to be a function, rather, to what extent is Tony going to be spending his time trying to fight off the takedown and stand back up versus trying to just find offense where offense can be found, right? I've said it before. If your game plan is when you fight Khabib Nurmagomedov, if your game plan is that I'm going to fight off the takedown against the fence, stand back up, separate, and then go back to striking, I just don't think anyone in that division can do that to him. Maybe St. Pierre at 170 could do that, but... I just don't think any lightweight can do that. Even Justin Gaethje, I don't know about that, you know. I would really need to see how that works. And there's been arguments like, well, he's never really fought a distinguished wrestler in the way that uh, a Gregor Gillespie, who I know just lost, but I'm saying a wrestler of that caliber, or a Gaethje. You know, Gaethje was a very good collegiate wrestler as well. You know, he's never really faced someone of that level. He did face on the regional scene some very good wrestlers, but um, <coughs> it's a fair consideration. I would say um, I've actually done a little bit more analysis on the McGregor and uh, Cerrone fight, but um, my initial, my overall view of it is that is that it, you know to the extent your game plan is predicated on that. The problem is there's still many other unknowns. Like one thing I pointed out is that like you know where did Poirier have some of his success when he was going for some of those chokes that forced Khabib to go down to his back? Now Javier Mendez said that. Habib's never been choked in practice. I just find that extremely difficult to believe. I'm not accusing someone of lying. I'm just saying, I mean, even the very best black belts on earth get caught. So, like, why would Khabib be any different in that regard? So that one's a little weird for me. But um, but I don't know that jiu-jitsu works on him long-term, right? Like, in other words, okay, Poirier found some success with it. But what if he had tried that from like the word go? Like you don't you fight off the takedown a little bit, and, like you spend a little bit of energy trying to fight it off. But then when he gets you down, you just go into attack mode underneath. Uh, what if like no one's really tried that in a sustained way? Who has a really good guard or has a really good front headlock series? But what if someone like had tried that, and we also saw that that didn't work? I mean, the only reason I keep bringing it up is it seems like it had some success for Dustin Poirier, and no one's really tried it. But it could also be the case that someone tries it and it also is just not any real improvement. That the way you got to beat him is maybe the Gaethje style, which is in his face, back him up, stuff his takedowns. Yes, you have to match it. You have to match his intensity and then box his ears. Maybe that's the better way to go about it. But what I do know for sure is backing up and then once you're here against the fence, oh, I'm going to fight everything off. You're going to have a really bad day. It's going to be a very bad day for you. Uh, why did you miss morning combat on Monday? Because of the weather, as I wrote here. The weather was terrible. Uh, the The American train system, for any of our European viewers, is not awesome. It's decent between New York and Boston, so New York to Philly, Philly to New York, New York to Boston, and all the various stops in between, and which is where I run it. But even then, it's not, it's not great. Um, so I knew with a foot of snow coming from Boston, which is often where my trains originate, I was not going to get home on time, and which wouldn't have been in the end of the world if I was like single or my wife didn't have a kid to take care of, you know, but it's a lot when it's just her all the time to take care of a baby. So I was like, I can't risk that. If McGregor loses to Donald Cerrone in devastating fashion, do you think he retires and vice versa? I don't think Donald Cerrone retires to a loss to McGregor, especially at 170. If McGregor loses to Cerrone, I have been thinking about this. And we talked about this on my radio show pretty extensively. Um, so it basically boils down to how you view McGregor's commitment, which is to say the following. Here's one possibility. You're right. He might retire. He might say, shit, um, this, I am, I have worked myself into an unrecoverable mess, you know, taking that much time off in these two divisions and think you can just get back in there. Even as Chuck Mendenhall pointed out a de-escalation into what what was presumed to be a manageable win. If even that eludes you, you know you have serious problems. You have serious problems, and he's already made all the money in the world. Um, maybe he'll escape legal jeopardy, in which case, what is he doing? Well, 
what, why, why fight? That is one possibility. And it's like, also, if you can't beat Cerrone, who just lost to Gaethje, what hope do you have against any of the top-tier lightweights? You know, It's not like Cerrone's some kind of scrub. That's not it. But it's like the very best ones beat him. Yeah, the very best ones beat him. So if you can't beat him, that is a good indication that you're not one of the very best. And if you're not one of the very best, then who are you? Maybe he'll take a Diaz fight, I think is another possibility. You could say, well, the Cerrone one didn't go his way, but we already know he can beat um, Diaz. Maybe he'll go in that direction. That's a possibility as well. And then I think a third one might be, he could say, well, i am just been too rusty, and this is not my natural weight class. I'm going back to 155, and uh, I'll see you all there. I'm going to get another fight, and I'll be fine. There are ways he could continue this. I would say this, though. The loss to Mayweather was completely forgiving. The loss to Nurmagomedov was very understandable. I mean, who beats Nurmagomedov? So far, nobody. Right? Very understandable. The loss to Cerrone would be harder to square. Be much harder to explain away. Because you sought out 170. Basically, I think, I don't know, that Cerrone was hand-picked, but I don't think that they're forcing opposition on McGregor anytime soon. So there's probably a degree of, let's put it, let's put it nicely, a degree of t- compliance there with... McGregor, and, and everything was kind of tailor-made on your your clock, and you still couldn't win, you, that would be a major problem. That would be a major problem in terms of the public perception of his abilities because, man, you know what? I went back and I watched that McGregor versus uh, Alvarez fight. Jesus, was he locked on that evening or what? He took some big punches, but his chin is good. Yeah, He no-sold all of Eddie's scrambles. He stuffed the shots. He had good frames. His counterpunching sliding back in the pocket was just sublime. I mean, he was so good that night. He was absolutely dialed in. And one of the funny parts about that fight that I forgot was that when it was over, he had a little muted celebration at first. At first, he just got off calmly like he was. You ever rake the leaves in your yard, and then you bag them up, and then you put the bag on the curb to be picked up by the city? It was like the view that... um, he had picked, the, put the bag, collected all the leaves, put it on the, um, put it on the sidewalk, taking his yard gloves off, and then walked back in the house. Like that was the amount of. That that it, it was just that routine to him. And then later on, he did this thing, and then you know when they put the microphone in his face, he did the whole, you know, double champ does what he wants, all that kind of stuff. He kind of lit up after that, but he was so dialed in, man. He was so calm. You know, which makes me think he's going to beat Cerrone, of course. I think many of you would probably agree. You're asking, what if? What if he loses? Um, boy, that'd be a far cry from the guy who beat Eddie Alvarez, huh? Because he whooped Eddie. And Eddie is a hard, Eddie, Eddie is a very good fighter. So, so yeah, that would be bad. But there are ways he could continue in different mechanisms. So I wouldn't immediately expect a retirement, but I wouldn't exclude it either. Do you think it's a good idea for Edgar to be taking a short-notice fight? No, I do not against Korean Zombie at 145 and then fighting Sandhagen at 135 a month later. Edgar has not proven to make 135 yet, and this seems ill-advised to be fighting such a hard hitter so soon. I don't like this at all. Now, understand what I'm about to say. Who doesn't respect Frankie Edgar? Who is the idiot who doesn't admire his guts? Who is the guy who's going to be ready to count him out? Not me on any of those. This is not a proclamation about whether or not he will win against Korean Zombie. I don't necessarily love his chances, but I actually think he can make it pretty competitive against anybody at 145, not named Jose Aldo or Max Holloway. Maybe Volkanovski we'll talk about in a second, but but the, a, a non-title contender at this point. Um, I think he's so good he could, he could still do that. The point about going to 135 was to chase a title, not to beat very good guys at 145. I don't like this. I don't. I don't. I don't like it, and I frankly don't understand it. So, for one reason, you already mentioned we haven't even seen him at 135. I don't think he'll have trouble making the weight, but exactly how does he perform there? It's a big. It's a big mystery, and I think there are some questions there about to what extent are you derailing your focus by doing that? Not merely in terms of how physically prepared are you for the t- for the task at hand, but then on top of it, like what is your goal? If the goal is to get UFC gold by assessing the lay of the land and then deciding that a new weight class is your best choice, fine, that's okay. But then why aren't you doing that? Here's my point. Let's say he goes in there and beats Korean Zombie, which I would not count him out. But let's say he does that. Number one, forget just the whole 
can he make it to the Sanhagen fight? Let's say he wins. Number one, is he even going to want to j- jump down to 135 to go fight Sanhagen and then say to himself, well, I'm if I beat... I mean, think about it. Korean Zombie versus Brian Ortega was something of a number one contender's fight. Maybe not for Brian Ortega because he hadn't fought, but certainly for Korean Zombie, I think if he wins, you could make a case that he would get the winner of Max versus Volkanovski. Even that's a little debatable, but you, it's, it's not... That's very plausible. So number one, do you even want to go to 135 at that point? And it's like, you just made a choice, a career choice to drop down there. Now you're looking the other way because you got this new contendership position in the queue. Two, would the UFC give him a title shot? You might say they might. Okay, fine. But three, here's the point. He had three title shots at 145. Two against Aldo, he lost both. One against Max, he lost cleanly. They were all in many ways competitive, except for, I would say, the second Aldo fight. But, um, but you know, he hung in there. And was, you know, he didn't get stopped in any of them, right? He, he was a good fighter through all of them. But I don't want to play MMA math, and I'm not playing MMA math. I'm just saying as a probability question, not as a declarative statement. If you can't beat Aldo and you can't beat Max, you're going to beat the guy who, if Volkanovsky wins, you'll beat the guy who will beat them both? The answer is, styles make fights. What is it about Edgar style that would give Volkanovsky problems? Have you all seen him fight? I mean, you're talking about the same kind of game in many ways that Edgar has in certain capacities, but just upgraded. I mean, his volume is extraordinary, physically strong, incredible takedown defense, power puncher. I mean, you want he's got that that those guys at City Kickboxing, man, with the stance switching and how it affects range and how they incorporate feints into all of it. I mean, they have a whole coded system to how they strike. It is levels beyond not merely what Frankie Edgar is doing, much of that division. If you're asking me who's the livest dog at among title challengers at one four, uh, two, excuse me, UFC 245, it's Volkanovski. Dude, Max has his hands full. Max absolutely has his hands full, okay? So you let's say you beat Korean Zombie and you jump the queue. At this point, do you even want to go to 135? And secondly, if you stick around, you're going to beat that guy who will, again, because they're not going to give you another title shot against Holloway. They'll give you a title shot if Max loses to Volkanovski, and you're going to beat the guy that beat the two guys you couldn't beat? Maybe. I don't like the chances. And then, I made this point before, forget all that other part. Let's say you win or lose whatever, and you still want to go make 135. Here are the last three opponents that Korean Zombie has fought since he came back from his uh, military sabbatical. Hanato Moikano, he just fought, viciously knocked out. You can't make a fight a month later after getting knocked out. Second. Yair Rodriguez. Now, Yair won on that last-minute elbow, but the point is both those guys ended up going to the hospital. Like, did, did anyone leave there in a position to then go and uh, take a fight a month later? Were you medically eligible? Because remember, a commission has to medically clear you to do it. You can't just say, oh, I feel fine. No, 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 they're going to check you out. And yeah, you can hide some stuff, but um, the UFC, if you, get, you know, if you get dropped, are they going to let you go fight a month later? Maybe, maybe, but you start to get dicey. And then the third one was uh, Dennis Bermudez. He got viciously knocked out too. So you got two guys who got knocked out and one guy who had to go to the hospital, although he won. It's like, even if you win, man, you ain't walking out of there unscathed against this dude. Like, the idea that you can just go do that, like, is it possible that, I mean, and I will tell you what, if you, I'll say this about Frankie Edgar. If he can go and fight Korean Zombie, win, be able to fight a month later at 135 and beat Sandhagen, that might be one of the most awesome fucking things I've ever seen in my life. That would truly be an absolutely, in the words of Ray Hudson, magisterial accomplishment. But you want to talk about an uphill climb. Wow. They're, they don't come much steeper. Because you not only have to win, you have to win against a guy who is known for being brutal. Uh... And you have to get out unscathed, then drop a weight class. And oh, by the way, Corey Sanhagen has double the output in strikes landed per minute as Korean Zombie, nearly. Almost almost two to one. I mean, the dude gets hit a little bit, little bit more, but his output is constant. Constant. Uh, I don't like the chances. That is, uh, you know, you could, you could hold, you know, you want to be Harrison Ford and then, you know, run the, what is it, what, what is it, run the Galaxy in 14 parsecs, whatever he did. Good luck, man. I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff they see in the movies. But if I'm advising him as a, like a friend or a manager, I I don't advise this. I don't I don't understand what the value is. It's like 
it's it's professionally confusing. It's uh, ultimately not that fruitful in the sense of you know wh- what do you get out of it with a win? Um, because you may not get a title shot even if you win, in which case you've just abandoned the plans and then you can't meet up again at 135. Uh, it leaves one, the, it leaves Corey Sandhagen in a terrible lurch. I mean, there's just it's just a lot of different factors that I don't love about this fight. A lot. I mean, I love the fight. <clears throat> it's a cool fight. And again, who doesn't admire Frankie Edgar's absolute risk-taking, you know? And you're going to say, oh, Luke, these are the challenges he's always answered. Yeah, he's 38 now, though, right? I mean, it's fun to tell yourself uh, you're amazing at 28, and you actually might be. And if he pulls I'm telling you, if he pulls this off at 38, I'm not kidding. That's one of the more, that, would, that would be one of the more impressive things I've ever seen in MMA. I, 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 I 1,000% mean that. That will be seriously a absolutely spectacular one-two. And, and God bless him if he can do it, man, because I don't know who could. So if he does it, wow, that would be impressive. But that is a lot of risk for very unclear reward. Um, did Connor make a mistake taking this fight at 170? The few knockdowns against Diaz notwithstanding, it seems like his power doesn't carry as well against bigger, heavier opponents. I feel if this fight goes to the ground, it will end very quickly just like Diaz won. It could, although I would say Connor has underrated takedown defense, which is to say, which is to say, not that I think his takedown defense is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Rather, um, he he often gets labeled as having very bad takedown defense, and that's just not accurate. He has, I would call, not great, but good. He has good takedown defense. Probably good enough to, although Cerrone's takedowns have really improved over the years, but let's say probably probably good enough to stuff him. Um, and I, I would say this about Cerrone. I don't think he has a bad chin, but we know he is historically susceptible to the body, and he is especially susceptible to pressure-forward rangy boxers. So with that in mind, this seems like, you know, would I advise a sustained campaign at 170? I would not. Is this one probably okay? Yeah. Probably okay. Mm-hmm. Do you know if it's true Covington was on the brink of being cut, not having a contract offered once expired after the fight in Brazil? Yes. Not sure if the UFC can cut a fighter randomly if they haven't lost their last fight. No, it was before... Oh, what was the mechanism? It was before the Maya fight. Um, and he was either like the end of his deal or something like that. Yeah, there are some, well, there are some ways they can dismiss you, though. Um... But in any event, I think they had certainly threatened, like, we're not going to renew a contract with you. Was this the spark of desperation? Yeah. What are your thoughts on the fact that we are going to have three pay-per-views in a row, headlined by welterweights, Nate, Jorge, Usman, Colby, Connor, Cowboy, yet the one that will be the least watched and hasn't been hyped too much is the actual title fight in a week? Love the show. Keep it up. Listen every time. Um, Appreciate that. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, Nate Jorge was an unusual fight, and Connor Cowboy is, you know, it's was just lightweight, it's moonlighting at welterweight. To be quite honest with you, Cowboy is a much more authentic welterweight. But do we really think of Connor as a welterweight? I mean, maybe we will start having to, but I don't. So it's a little bit unusual in the sense of like, what does it say that the least of those is Usman Colby? Yeah, but like Usman Colby will beat all those guys. Probably. Probably. Jorge is obviously your X factor there, but Usman and Colby beat all the rest of them. Um, Okay, what do we make of that? I don't make a whole lot out of it. I mean, in part, Nate and Jorge are uh, veterans of the game who've been around a lot longer and have had a lot of time to invest in their name. Connor and Cowboy, Cowboy less so, but Connor certainly traditionally a 155er who's just sort of accommodating a, a lack of a desire for a weight cut. Or, or I should say a, a significant weight cut because there's still a weight cut involved. And then Usman Colby, are, these guys are still blowing up their brand. You know, I will tell you this, though. You know what's kind of weird? I mean, I think next week's probably going to be pretty ugly when, they get, when they're literally forced face-to-face. Have you all noticed how quiet the buildup has been for Usman and Colby? Dude, I thought for sure it'd be super ugly. Like the whole Jay-Z Nas beef. Super ugly. Um, by the way, real quickly, this is no... Hold on. See that killer cub? 
This is uh, I, I got this cup for, or I got this cup. I got this mug for free when I bought um, Cub Swanson's coffee. Can I just say something? There's, there's not a plug. I actually just bought it. It's not a. I'm not. He didn't tell me to say anything. Nothing like that, dude. Cub Swanson's coffee is awesome. It's legitimately very good. Now, again, coffee is sort of like wine. It's not as diverse as wine, but there's all different kinds of coffee, and people have all kinds of different preferences about what they like. And there's you know, there's hot weather coffee and there's cold weather coffee in terms of how you prepare it, but um, and all and, and every other imaginable uh, difference in between. His is a little bit more on the chocolatier, chocolatier, chocolatier side, a little bit lighter as well. It is super well balanced. It is delicious to drink. It is a very pleasing cup of coffee. If you've not had it, uh, go get it. And then I bought this mug because it just came with it. His coffee is awesome. Really, really good. In any event, with uh, Usman and Colby, there just hasn't been much of a back and forth. Is it because they're not getting media requests? I don't know. That you, really, you buy that? Uh, maybe. My hunch is that both of those guys are so in the weeds on this that uh, they don't want to do anything other than prepare for the other guy. Now, next week, that'll change when they have you know all the media that they have to do. But I've been very, very I, – I was like – after that showdown they had when he, Colby, beat Robbie Lawler in Newark and they had that face-off, I was like, oh, man, this is going to be – this is going to be terrible. It's going to be a terrible fight, you know, and they're going to – it's going to be all MAGA versus, you know, the Nigerian nightmare thing, and I just don't know where that's going to take us, you know, because these guys were fighting in buffet lines and, and, and whatnot. But it's been really, really quiet. It's been surprisingly – there's not much to it, in a way. Kind of funny. Would you rather a fighter be good at everything or be special in one style? After much consideration, I will tell you this. You, it's not possible to be to win at a high level and just be good at one thing. So that's not. It's not. This is not a fair question. What I would say is this: What do I prefer? I prefer. A, I prefer a specialist in the sense that they don't have huge liability. It's not like well-rounded, like where I, you know, I want your striking to be as good as your wrestling, to be as good as your jiu-jitsu. If you're a St. Pierre, you can pull that off at a high level everywhere. But in general, what that means is you're going to get a lot of these guys who, like, I mean, just it's just a rational choice. If you have to get good at everything in the dimensions, you're not going to get good at the specifics. So if I need to be good at wrestling and jiu-jitsu and striking on equal parts, I'm not going to have a great mount. I'm not going to have great combinations. I'm not going to have great arm bars and sweeps from the guard because I don't have time to really invest in that kind of stuff. What I think is, you know, make sure you you train wrestling, make sure you train striking, but have really just absolutely killer aggressive submissions or whatever whatever the whatever the one skill set is. And usually it's one and a half to two skill sets. Like Khabib's got good submissions combined with wrestling. He's got some good striking too, but you guys know what I mean. Uh, I, I just like seeing specialists who don't have obvious liabilities. But if you don't, you know, but just like, oh, I'm only good at jiu-jitsu, it's like, I, that, that doesn't solve for me. But, you know, this whole thing where like, oh, what, the, the future of MMA will be all these guys who are good at everything. Turns out that's not very enjoyable, actually, for the most part. There's a couple of exceptions. But, yes, you need to, you need to be competent everywhere, but I want you to be a specialist somewhere. What is the line between investigative journalism and personal vendetta, more specifically in MMA with Mike Russell and Ali Abdelaziz? In films, it seems to be a fine line. Just wondering if you could shed some light on the reality of investigative journalism. I'm not an expert at all in investigative journalism, generally, and possibly, possibly the case specifically. Appreciate all the cheers, uh, content. Cheers from Canada. Well, in terms of the case specifically, I don't know enough about it because it is a very complicated, confusing case in the way it's been presented to the public. Um, if that makes me a bad person, then it makes me a bad person. I don't really care. Look, I'll just say this. Um, as an abstract idea in terms of investigative journalism, uh, if you did the shit, then there is no line. Right? I mean, yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're resorting to unethical means to collect information, if you're reporting false things, well, then, of course, that is, I mean, who would be in favor of such a thing? Who could defend that? If what you're reporting is the truth, then just keep reporting it. I don't. I don't understand what the problem with that would be. Now, in the case of this particular situation, again, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, 
there's been a long promised um, podcast. I know that uh, from what I've said, read on social media, Mike has had a series of obstacles to bring that to bear. Fair enough. I'm waiting to see it. I think that will be clarifying uh, if and when we get to see that. So that's kind of what I'm waiting on. I'm waiting for it to be presented in a coherent, um, digestible mechanism because a lot of it is just sort of sporadic social media reporting from what I'm able to detect. Again, I'm not trying to like, I'm just saying what my experience has been with it. But as a general rule, people think that like, you know, if you look at uh, Ronan Farrow, for example, it's like, oh, is he going after Harvey Weinstein? And I'm not comparing, you know, Ali to Harvey or anybody else. I'm simply, I'm simply noting that particular dynamic, the Ronan Farrow, Har- Harvey Weinstein. If Harvey is guilty of the things that Ronan is accurately reporting, then what is the line? Some of the truth, half the truth, the story, if you can corroborate the story, you have enough sources, direct evidence, to make it publishable, then you publish it. It's the end of it, right? Now, there might be certain cases where somebody comes forward, maybe it's sketchy, maybe you can't corroborate what they're saying, and so you don't really, uh, you don't really go forward with it. Think about it. There might be cases where prosecutors want to um, they want to get a serial killer. A lot of times the guy will... Uh, you know, he'll be suspected of killing, let's say, 10 women, but they can only really prove two or three. And he might only get charged with the two or three, suspected of doing much more. They really focus in on what can we ha- what can we do, what can we stick on this guy? Let's just go with that when we have the highest threshold of, of an evidentiary basis. Then, then you do that. But if to the extent you can do that to all 10, you do it to all 10. Whatever the, whatever the situation might end up being, if it's the truth, if it is properly corroborated and sourced, if you have accurate evidence for it, there is no line. Right? Did you collect it ethically? Is it all true? Can you verify it? Hit send. Right? Uh, now, the, the, doing all that is very difficult. I am grossly oversimplifying the process. But I mean to say, I think a lot of times people think journalism is like, well, what did he say and then what did they say? But like, think about it this way. Okay, on one side you have scientists that say the moon revolves around the sun. Uh, and I'm again, this is an exaggerated example. On the other side you have this astrologist who says the moon is made of green cheese. Well, you know, we got to get both sides here and we have to let the listener or the reader decide what the truth is. Like, no. Sometimes the truth is ugly and it is by definition adversarial. And sometimes you have to adopt an adversarial posture to really stick it to uh, institutional power. You got to make sure you do your homework. You got to make sure you're right. You got to make sure you're telling the truth. You have to deliver it uh, rigorously. But if it's true and you know it's true and you can prove it's true and you collected it all ethically, why would you not? Why would Ronan Farrow not publish that? Why would, you know, Seymour Hirsch? Not publish stuff. Why would Glenn Greenwald f- with the in- with the leaks from Edward Snowden? Why would he not? Why would he not publish that? Again, there were some things they didn't publish, right? Because they felt like in the case of Glenn Greenwald and uh, Edward Snowden with the original Prism leaks, that there might be some things that compromise the lives of individuals working in the government uh, in sensitive areas. So they actually thoroughly vetted what had been given to him, and some things made it, some things didn't. Okay, those are some other considerations, but in general. Like, yeah, you you publish it. And if it seems like you're going after someone in a very vociferous way, maybe you are. That that in and of itself is not a problem. So I would just say, with this situation or any other one, these are the questions you have to ask yourself. How do you define the difference between a casual MMA fan and a hardcore MMA? How do I define the difference? Um... You know, it's it's never a hard and fast rule. I would say it's not it's okay. Here we go. It's not binary. It's not hardcore fan, casual fan. The way I like to think of it is a series of concentric circles. Um, I think uh, I think I borrowed this for a, a lack of. Uh, uh, I'll just say Sam Harris, whatever one makes of him, has ideas about Islam. Whatever one makes of them, I'm not here to get into it. Believe me. Uh, and he characterizes religious uh, adherence and fanaticism as a series of concentric circles. So at the center of it would be like the most, you know, hardcore, 
uh, jihadi or something. And then as you get out, now again, you can take issue with this framing, by the way. I'm not here to justify it. I'm merely saying I have heard him say it. I'm not going to weigh in on it. But the I would I would borrow it for our purposes. At the center is like a small group of like really hardcore devotees who watch things from overseas and they know all the history and you know they read Sherdog when Sherdog was the king of all MMA media and blah 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 and then they knew who you know um, Larry Landless is and all kinds of stuff from his refereeing days and blah 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 and then it goes out from there and then the, the pie or I should say the circles get bigger because the population gets bigger as you get more and more casual so the question is like where inside those series of rings do you find yourself and usually you know there's there could be some differences there, but it's not binary. It's not hardcore cash. It's like super hardcore, hardcore, you know, um, knowledgeable, and then it gets to casual, and then like light casual, then, you know, that kind of a thing. With Brian, with Brain getting injured, that's what it says here, and Frankie being the most likely to replace him in South Korea, man, blah, 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 blah. I've already been over this one. Uh, hey, Luke, in your experience with MMA interviews on media platforms such as radio, magazines, blogs, and podcasts, do fighters, coaches, managers require and or receive payment from the respective media platform conducting the interview? And you wrote uh, E.G. ESPN, MMA Fighting, The Athletic, BT Sports, Series, etc. Or do they partake of their own volition? I have never paid for an interview once. There have been times where SiriusXM flew out, for example, like the Diaz brothers, and they paid for their travel, but they didn't pay them to be on. Like, they didn't make money on the show. You know I mean, they didn't walk home with extra cash in their pocket. They just said, Hey, you live in California. Okay. We'll fly to New York and, uh, you know, pay for your travel. But like, I've never, <laughs> I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm sure it has. I've never paid for an interview. Dude, I don't have like, I don't even like doing interviews <laughs> all that much. You think I'm going to pay for one? Nah, I get paid to do them. And even then I'm like dragging my feet. Do you believe fighters and others should be compensated for such interviews? Fuck no. Is it generally a case of paid and exposure? However you want to frame it, like, I'm, I'm asking you questions. Do you want to answer them or not? Yes, you might get some attention from this. If that's the thing you'd like to do, and okay. If not, okay. I'm not paying you shit. Have you, uh, has that ever proved a sticking point for yourself or colleagues of yours in the past? No. I've also never had someone try to shake me down for one either. As always, thanks for the great work. No. Fuck No. I'll never do that. Like, I'm sure, like, for... I, I don't know what happens with Brendan Shaw, but I'm guessing that Showtime flies some of those guys out there. I mean, some of them that he just gets who are naturally out there. There probably is a travel budget to fly him in. But they don't, like, you know, deal him out cash. They just say, hey, here's your here's your boarding pass. Get on a flight. Which X-Men character is your favorite? Ooh. I mean, Wolverine's usually a lot of everyone's favorite. I would say, though... Professor Xavier's a bitch. Um, <laughs> who do I like? Year, you know, when I was a kid, I thought Cyclops was the best. But as I get older, it's so weird, man. When I was a kid, I thought Cyclops was amazing. And then Iron Man wasn't shit when I was a kid. And now Iron Man's like the coolest. And Cyclops is like, I don't know, sort of like a sad jock. They've not done a good job with that character at all. Gambit, I used to like a little bit. Look at that Louisiana accent there from the Crawdads. <laughs> uh, he was cool. Um, is Galactus an X-Men character? Can't remember anymore. I know he's Marvel. I was always kind of a Galactus guy. Uh, but I don't know if he's... I don't know if he's, um, and Silver Surfer always had a stupid name. I hated his name. So I don't know. I'll say, I'll say Gambit, you know, and I know people like, oh, we think throwing the cards is, is kind of stupid, but I don't know. I always kind of respected it a little bit. Uh, why do we never see real hard-hitting questions put to Dana at fighters and UFC events? Uh, you know what? Here's the thing. Does the UFC Dana White control the majority of the MMA media? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think they. I think UFC probably has a strong say over ESPN's coverage. Um, I've got some reasons to believe that, but 
in general, no. Like, for example, like you know, guys, all the things I've said about UFC. I mean, I've called them, and I stand by it. They're monopsonists. You know, yesterday I rolled up to Media Day. All the UFC media staff, and they have nothing to do with, like, coverage. They're just people doing their PR jobs, uh, which are fine jobs. I'm not, like, diminishing them. I'm just saying, like, there's not like Dana's on the phone with them all the time telling them what to do. But um, they were super friendly. They were super friendly to me. Like, you know, hey, Luke, how's the baby? Blah, blah, blah. They were cool, you know? So uh, here's why, though. I think and this is the point I've made. It's like, dude, they're not press conferences, man. When you invite the media and the fans, and, and I know as fans this might be hard to understand and like, oh, who cares if the media can't ask the questions they want. Well, it's like, all right, man, well, what's the job? Is the job to do these things you've been asking or is the job to do something different? Um, here's what's going to happen. I've mentioned this before. If you go to a press conference and you ask one of these guys in front of the media, rather in front of the fans, a, uh, a hard-hitting question, such as what exists for depending who's up there, and you get they don't like it because the fans like the uh, fighter, Remember, fighters might like a fan, and the media has no obligation to like that person back, right? Or they, or they might also feel the same way. But just pointing out, you'll get booed, and it'll be uncomfortable, and then they'll just tell you to go fuck off. Like it's not like if you really want to get pertinent information, is that the best way to do it? If that is your last resort, it's a fine way to do it. But if you have other opportunities to do it, where it's a little bit more of a like, scrums are a better th- way to get information from Dana. How many scrums do you see these days? You know, not that many. Um, so that's a bit of a problem. But, like, that's a better way to – You'll that's that's much more in keeping with um, a good way to get information. The best way to do it is to not do it through those things. They're pep rallies, man. They're not, they're not press conferences. They're pep rallies. And there's nothing wrong with a pep rally. A pep rally is fine, but that's the way you should think about it. It's like it's just not a great way to get good information. If you do that in front of the crowd like that, Dan's going to tell you to, you know, next question. I'm not answering that. You're a goof. Fuck off. You're going to get booed. And then where are we? Did you, did you, did you advance the cause? You got to find your spots, you know, and that's harder to do. Again, if that's your only way to ask, well, then ask. But if you can find other mechanisms to ask, do it. Uh, otherwise, don't. And the last part is like, you know, also in terms of like when he does a media tour, Dana doesn't go to places that ask him. There's been many a times where, like, Dana's people have booked him on my show uh, weeks out, and then, you know, it's the day, like, a day or two out when he's reviewing his schedule. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming this because it never gets explained to me. They'll book him, and then a day out, they'll cancel for no apparent reason, and then I'll see he'll still do the media tour. You know, he doesn't go to places that I think he doesn't want to, of course, and he's not under zero obligation to come to mine, but... My guess is he doesn't go to places in general where he feels like he might get questions he doesn't want to answer. So, uh, Hey, Luke, I really like Morning Combat, so congratulations. Thank you. My question is, why do you think Dissected doesn't have such constant visualizations? I don't know what that means. Have you thought about making a second shorter version of Dissected that lasts about five minutes or something? Um, what do you? Why do you think Dissected doesn't have such constant visualizations i don't know what that means sir i don't mean to be um i am not being flippant I, I i literally don't understand that if you're asking why it couldn't be shorter of course it could be shorter the point being is everyone's got like hey here's a five minute clip for instagram tv or youtube my point is to like if you watch a full episode of dissected the hope is that you have a much clearer understanding not merely of what happened but about a fighter's tendencies about why things happen inside of an MMA cage and the way they do certain trends, you come away with a much, right? I could write an article, I could write a paper, or I could write a book, right? It's just the, the format. And I'm not here to say that each of those episodes is a book, but clearly, you know, 45 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes, it's much longer. It's much longer by design. I am looking to go deeper into the information. So if that reduces views, then it reduces views. Uh, is this the first time a pay-per-view 246 will be headlined by two fighters coming off of losses? I think I've been asked this before. I don't think that it is, but I could be wrong. Hi, Luke. I'm a big fan of strength sports. I know you are as well. I want to ask what you think strength sports need to gain more mainstream appeal. Good question. While individual lifts or feats of strength are impressive, I know the slow pacing can be a bit of a turnoff for people. Well, uh, it's complicated, you know. Here's what's so funny, man. If you actually look at, it's weird. I also think strength sports are a little bit bigger than people realize, and we just don't yet know it. Let me give you an example. If you look at like the online 
YouTube fitness community in all its various forms, whether it's like the CrossFit community and the CrossFit weightlifting or just weightlifting or just powerlifting or just bodybuilding or like general health and fitness. It's a huge community. It may seem like it's small. It's really not. It's actually really big. And you look at the numbers that they pull, it's extraordinary what some of these guys do in terms of their audience. Now, I have seen real growth for strongman, you know, with these circus lifts that they do, and these guys are all like six foot eight and 400 pounds, and, um, you know, they're deadlifting and blood is shooting out of their nose and stuff like that. That's got a real, that's got a real appeal, I think. I know that sounds kind of crazy coming out of my mouth just now, but, you know, you can put that on TV. But the problem is, um, folks who don't realize this, the same folks who own the UFC own World's Strongest Man. Endeavor owns it. They don't want to put any money into it. I uh, had some talks with some folks who uh, have worked with uh, worked on it before, and there's some reasons why they don't. Also, it's like it's hard to produce live because the guys get so tired. <laughs> you know, they have terrible cardio, but they're just strong as shit. You know, so they can only do a couple or a few events a day. Um, there's long rest periods in between. It's just really hard to structure for a live program, so they kind of record it after the fact and then show it. And you could say, well, there's not a lot of money into it. I really believe that the right kind of investment and the right kind of packaging could make Strongman very, very mainstream-ish. I'd also argue things like American Ninja Warrior are fitness community, if not directly, I would call that fitness community adjacent. You're getting these guys with like stupid, awesome grip strength and um, you know, look at this story, this amazing fireman who lost his dog in a car accident and this is his way of healing. And then he goes and does all that shit and salmon ladder and all that. Dude, it's like really compelling content. It's really compelling content. Bodybuilding, I think less so. Bodybuilding is one of those things where it's like fun to look at uh, for some. Uh, oh, hey, here is, um, hey, look at uh, Kai Green's bicep curls. Oh, I could take that to the gym and I could use something similar but it's as a sport to watch it's very very difficult i don't know i don't know there's a whole lot you can do i think there's potential for strongman powerlifting is trying to become something of an anti-weightlifting which is to say if you watch weightlifting it's got olympic regulation and it's like tennis they go up to the bar and everyone's quiet and there's horns beeping and it's like it's very it's very clean presentation and then you know lasha talahadze hits the snatch and everyone goes crazy in powerlifting, dude, they're having it like inside of cages. Like it's called, I think there was one at, uh, I think it was at the Arnold. They have something called like the cage. You have Steffi Cohen going in there and pulling, you know, nearly 600 pounds in sumo. And you've got Larry Wheels going in there and getting all aggro and then uh, Unleash the Weast and um, and uh, uh, who else? Uh, Pete Rubish going in there, you know, just pulling stupid numbers of uh, like, and then they're playing fucking crazy death metal and blah, blah, blah. And people get all into it. They're trying to be like a reaction to like almost like weightlifting being tennis. Powerlifting is um, what would the equivalent be? I'm not sure exactly. I don't know. Like if that's the country club, they want to be the, you know, they want to be the back alley kind of thing. The, the rock and roll side, the edgy side. I don't know if either one really works for me. I'm not sure what the right answer is, but. Powerlifting is also much more accessible. Like weightlifting is, I've said it before, it's su- there's only two lifts, just the snatch and the clean and jerk. And uh, they're, just, they're just really technical. <laughs> they're very, very difficult lifts. A deadlift is a very technical lift, but it's learnable. A bench, obviously the same, and then a squat as well. And there's you know, high bar, low bar. They all do the low bar. I do high bar. But, um, but that's really accessible to the average person. So if you're asking me, I think that there's a lot that can be done with uh, powerlifting and strongman. They can be much bigger. It just, someone hasn't taken the sport by the scruff of the neck, and it's harder to do in powerlifting because while everything runs through the Olympics for weightlifting, powerlifting is just untested federation, you know, tested federation. Records raw, records, uh, you know, equipped, and it gets kind of confusing. But I do believe that there is significant potential for both. It's just in the case of World's Strongest Man, you have corporate ownership that's not especially invested in um, pushing it forward. You have a you have a you have a programmatic challenge in there, given the nature of things. And then also with powerlifting, I think that that desire to be the rock and roll weightlifting, I think it actually limits it to a degree. It makes it different, which is good. But if the whole point is that what you offer is accessible, turn off the metal music. And I say that as a metal fan. 
but that's not either you're accessible or you're not. Which one is it? And you know, blasting uh, wine and piss from Godsmack is not going to get the average. Per- like everybody, I well not everybody. You know, uh, I know they had the was it Oberst who was on um, Rogan's who's like no one should deadlift. I I mean I couldn't disagree more. There's different kinds of deadlifting and different ways to program it, and there's different kinds of hip hinge movements you should be doing. But I feel like a lot of people should be doing that kind of stuff. And when you realize how accessible it is and how beneficial it is for like for body health, when again when you program it in certain ways. I just think it'd be it could be so much more popular than it is, but I think the way in which it's handled by the people who handle it, they're very clueless about what it means to be mainstream. There have been a trend of lightweights agreeing to fight at the welterweight 170-pound limit lately. Should a win in those bouts give them credit towards their rankings in lightweight? No. Should these lightweights be allowed to jump the welterweight rankings without having had to fight legitimate welterweights? It depends, um, because Cowboy has fought there. I'm not sure where he's ranked at the moment, but there are ways to make those wins count. So they don't count, or that they couldn't beat other legitimate welterweights. But I, I keep saying this. Like, for example, this just drives me nuts. That's not the problem with the rankings. Here, let's pull up the rankings. Let me see. Is Tyron Woodley still the number one contender? I mean, the people doing the rankings who put Tyron at number one, you just, you just don't know what the fuck you're doing. I don't, know, I don't know how else to say this. Please listen to me. You do not know what the fuck you are doing. Why isn't the champion ranked? You ever ask yourself this? Why is the champion not ranked? Because the whole idea behind the rankings, and this is where it comes from, is a contendership cue. Who is the most deserving challenger, as best we can ascertain, for a title shot? And there's debates that will be in there. And measuring who goes where is very inexact. You have to do uh, uh, a lot room for you know, latitude in terms of judgment calls on this. At the same time, this is not a knock on Tyron, but Tyron lost in March of 2019, I believe. And, right? Yes, and hasn't fought since. Since that time, everyone else around him has. The idea that since March, so April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, now we're in December, nine months later, that he's the number one He's the number one contender in terms of that position being reserved for the most deserving candidate for a title shot is silly. Of course he is not. Now, maybe he beats Leon Edwards and he's right back there. Fine. I get it. Um, but there's this thing where if you lose the title, the rankings people make you number one, which I don't agree with. And then even worse... They'll keep you there for a very long time. Tyron Woodley is a one of the best welterweights we've ever seen. Is as skilled as they come. Is a, I mean, how many nice things can I say about him? Is a great family man. Is good on the microphone. Dude, he's one of the best desk analysts UFC's ever had. He's not the number one contender. I don't care what the rankings say. Colby Covington is your number one contender. And you know that by virtue of the matchmaking. <laughs> is anyone going to argue that there's someone who deserves a title shot at 170 right now more than Colby? Whatever you think about Colby, they don't know what they're doing making these rankings. They do not understand what the purpose is. It's like, well, I think this guy's better than that guy. And Tyron was champion, and Colby was only interim champion, so Tyron must be able to hold this position forever. No, it doesn't work that way. Who is most deserving? And again, people are going to have differences. They're gonna, not everyone's going to have the same system. And if, when someone loses, do you drop them to three? Do you drop them to four? These are difficult questions. You have to really ask yourself and weigh the merits. Here's what I can say. We are so far past that point at nine months that as a number one contender, I just, I don't, I don't, what could possibly be a coherent intellectual justification for that position? I don't, I cannot fathom what it could be. All right. Um, If there are some thingamajigs, then we'll get to them. Oh shit, there's a bunch. All right, let's get to them now because I got to get going. Hey, man, how come you didn't end up going with the half beat? It's catchy, speaks to your interest in technique, and it's a nice sign-off. I'll catch all of you donks next week on the half beat. Because a bunch of y'all hated it. Uh, is the tweet-up happening? Dude, I tried so many different ways to get people interested in the tweet-up, and the level of enthusiasm was so fucking low. Like, when I do them at a pay-per-view, you know, like UFC 250 or whatever it is, the, people come all the time, you know, and they, they actually get, and they end up being crowded. And I love doing them, but I got like a really tepid response. So, I mean, I might do something with Michael Bond later, so stay locked to Twitter, but 
you know, I just didn't get a lot of response. So, you know, if I don't see, I mean, I'm not, what I'm not going to do is say, Hey, come out and hang out. And then like five people show up, fuck all that. Share your top songs, 2019 Spotify playlist with us mouth breathers. I don't use Spotify. I use, uh, I use Apple music, so I don't have one, unfortunately. Someone says you should say, and as always catch them on the half beat, name a media member that you would be afraid to fight and why none of them, not one. Uh, well, do you count like I saw? So Anthony Smith came in studio last night, and he's doing like he does radio now, and he's like on the desk for UFC. I'd be afraid of that guy. Yeah, yeah. Anthony Smith would beat the shit out of me, but uh, you know, like straight up just media members. Come on, y'all, please. Someone says my dad is a former marine. He keeps his wallet in his sock instead of his pocket. Smart man. Is this a marine thing, or is my dad just weird as fuck? <laughs> Uh, he's not weird. The reason why you put it in the sock is because you're not allowed to put it in your pockets. Your pockets have to be flush against the skin. You can't put your hands in your pockets. You can't have nothing in your pockets. Like if you can kind of hide like a small billfold, I've seen some guys do that, but a thick wallet, no. So what everyone does is they use, um, what's called, um, they get these devices that attach to the bottom of your shirt. And then that runs all the way down the length of your leg and then attaches to your sock. And that's what keeps the shirt pressed like that. And then what they'll do is, because the sock is being held up by attaching to the bottom of the shirt, they'll just put the wallet in the sock, and then there's no way you can tell. Marines all do that. Do you have any weird habits you carried over from military to civilian life? I have no patience. That's a bad one, you know? Uh, what do you think is the line between tune-up fights and unethical matchmaking? Shevchenko versus Kachwera, for example. That's a really difficult question. Jesus. Um, a tune-up fight is supposed to be just competitive enough to not make you feel bad about it. And almost to the point where you're saying, wow, man, this guy who's uh, the B-side here has a real opportunity to do something great. Right? But... When someone is like so badly overmatched, that's when you get to the point where it's like, how did they, how was this fight made? Right? The point about a tune up fight is that the person gets a little bit of work. You know, they win. Yeah, they win maybe spectacularly, but they get a little bit of work in the process. You know, they get pushed through the paces a little bit, right? They break a nice sweat. But when they go out there and just bludgeon somebody, that's when it becomes a problem. Prime Nick versus Jorge, who wins? Ooh. Maybe Nick because he's bigger. Thoughts on Andrew Ruiz's weight gain? Already did that. Good morning, Luke. If Andre Ward were to come back out of retirement and fight Canelo 175, how do you see that going down? Oh, golly, these are good questions, but I don't have time to get to all of them. Um, how does Ward look late? Uh, I don't know. I think I don't know. I, I, these are that. I, I apologize. That's a very good question. I would need more time to think about that. When and who will Ryan Hall fight next? I'll tell you this. I uh, spoke to him. I was like, dude, how is it possible they did not put you on this DC card? I'll give UFC credit. They tried. People don't want to fight Ryan Hall. I'll leave it at that. They do not want to fight Ryan Hall. He is trying. He is trying. <laughs> Have you heard Kali Muscle's new track about not having a shirt on? Oh, Kali Muscle, you dog. No, I'm not. Let me hear that shit. Oh, God. Dude, Cali Muscle is the motherfucking man. I mean, he's not, but, you know, he's awesome. About not having... He's almost like 2 million subs. Jesus. Let's see. Shirt off music video. Hang on. All right, let's hear this shit. Hyphy mud. That's his pre-workout, which is just garbage. <laughs> oh, fuck. Oh, and it's auto-tuned? Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, yeah. Working after wearing shit, working, doing this on the dirt. Cause these lag goods on fuck. 
I don't know how he hasn't won an award for from Darwin yet. Uh, okay, let's see. Oops, turn that one off. All right. Should we be rooting for Ruiz to do it again? It seems more likely that Ruiz will move over to fight the winner of Wilder Fury 2. Maybe that's a misread. I don't, again, I don't root in that way. I sort of root like, me. who's the most deserving? I hope that person wins. I'll say this. If you, ha- if you root for Ruiz winning, and maybe he is more deserving, we'll find out tomorrow, you're kind of rooting for like the demise of Joshua, so keep that in mind. How much potential do you see in Sean O'Malley? At first, I was a little bit unconvinced, but since then, I have uh, I've really come around. I think he's got a huge potential, but he's got to get a bit cleared to fight. They're just wasting this kid's youth. Uh, now that Aaron Pico is with Jackson Wing, his new nickname will be Aaron Pico Grams. Boy, that is really funny. Okay. With that in mind, i got to get going. I appreciate you guys watching. As always, like the video, subscribe to the channel. Uh, I will be with Brian Campbell this weekend uh, and Monday. Not really for Morning Combat because we're doing the uh, the desk, the prelim desk for uh, Charlo uh, Hogan. So if you're in New York and not in D.C., that's uh, come say hi. I'm sorry to miss the fights in D.C. I really hate doing that, but I'm trying to do something with my life professionally. So that means i got to go to New York. I will see you guys on Monday for Morning Combat. Thank you guys so much for watching, and until then, uh, stay frosty.